Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to St. Michael's in the Morning, a podcast series encompassing everything from sermons and services to special audio presentations, brought to you by St. Michael's Episcopal Church in Austin, Texas. For more information or to make a donation to St. Michael's, please visit www.st-michaels.org. Hey everyone, this is episode 21 of our COVID-19 podcast, Calm Words for Anxious Hearts. And I know this past week was a challenging one and that we could all use a little calm and peace and perspective amidst what continues to be a really hard time in our nation's life. And so I thought today I want to dive right in and share something from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. Here ends the reading. One of my favorite verses in Scripture has always been Psalm 133, verse 1, which says, Oh, how good and pleasant it is when brethren live together in unity. But of course, if the events of this past week have reminded us of anything, it's that unity, being the one body in Christ that God says we already are, well, we're not there yet. Because the killing of George Floyd and the riots that followed shortly thereafter exposed something very significant. Racism, yes. But what I want to talk about today is a lot more deep and subtle than racism, and that is our deep-seated tendency as human beings, our desire to see ourselves as separate from and better than other human beings, whoever they happen to be. You see, the focus of so many of the articles I read this week commenting on what was happening didn't focus on the heartbreak over people's pain and behavior. No, I read a lot about disgust at who people were, a big fat dose of condemnation, and of course, a sense of being superior. The white supremacist sees himself as superior to non-whites. The Episcopalian sees himself as superior to the white supremacist. A Democrat feels superior to a Republican and a Republican in like manner to a Democrat. The groups change, the outer forms change, the cultural camouflage changes, but the underlying process that places me above you is always the same. And it is a disease. 
a disease the church fathers called original sin. And of course, it's a sin that we see clearly in the gospel passage I just read a few moments ago. There's a Canaanite woman, and she comes to Jesus because her daughter needs help. But Jesus' disciples don't see a child of God in need of compassion and healing. No, what they see is an unclean pagan, a woman, someone they are superior to, someone outside the pale of God's mercy and grace. And with callous words and a callous heart, they urge Jesus, send her away. Oh, how good and pleasant it is, writes the psalmist, when people live together in unity, when riots do not break out, when families don't fall apart, when we're out to understand our political rival, not destroy them. How wonderful life is when we all live as one, and how disheartening and scary and sad and lonely and powerless life is when we don't. So Jesus, being the master teacher that he is, Jesus gets very intentional about schooling his disciples and what he sees as the lifeblood of our unity, which the disciples don't yet get. And Matthew 9.13 sums this lesson up perfectly. Go and learn what this means, Jesus says. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've come not to call the righteous but sinners. Or to put it differently, the basis of this new community that I am forming, Jesus says, is that every member will know him or herself to be a sinner on the same level, a person in need of God's mercy where no one is superior to anyone else. For I have not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. But that, of course, is exactly what the disciples at this point do not understand. You see, they still think that Jesus is putting together a group of morally superior superstars, and they're a little puffed up with pride that Jesus has chosen them. And so to correct their misunderstanding, the master teacher decides to make God's universal mercy and humanity's universal need for mercy, the assigned lesson of the day. And the classroom he chooses? The district of Tyre and Sidon, a land filled with Gentiles and Canaanites, a place that one commentary I read calls, and I quote, unwashed territory, a toxic waste area, an unclean, miry, and dangerous place. As a side note, I used those same words this morning to describe my daughter's playroom. But alas, I digress. The point I'm trying to make is that Jesus leads his disciples into the heart of unwashed territory, into that very place where their felt sense of superiority can get stripped away. Now, something I just want to name, because we read this passage in isolation, it can seem for a moment like Jesus himself is prejudiced, that he's indifferent and perhaps even rude to this poor woman, as if this was the moment in Jesus's life when the Son of God himself was converted. But of course, when taken in the full context of Matthew's gospel as a whole, 
the exact opposite point is being made. Because the emphasis here is that Jesus intentionally leads his disciples into this unwashed territory where they're going to be forced to encounter someone they just assume is less than. You see, Jesus wants them to face this desire they have to feel superior to the people of Tyre and Sidon and to show the disciples that they are not more holy or special or better or more important than anyone else or less loved than anyone else for that matter. But Jesus' intention is to help them know, to help us know, that he has come only for sinners and that this category unequivocally includes all of us. Or as Paul puts it in his letter to the Romans, God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that he may be merciful to all. A wise man once said that there's only one thing he knows for certain about heaven, and that's whenever he gets there, it's going to be full of surprises. And I stumbled upon a poem this week that reminded me of his words. I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door, and not by the beauty nor the lights or its decor, but it was the people in heaven who made me sputter and gasp, the thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, and the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who took my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. I nudged Jesus, what's the deal? I'd love to hear your take. How'd all these sinners get up here? You must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet? Oh, please, just give me a clue. They're all in shock, said the Lord, at the thought of seeing you. So here's a question I'm going to ask you to bring into your prayer life this week. What is your district of Tyre and Sidon? What person, what part of town, what relative, political figure, or group of people Are you tempted to see yourself as separate from and superior to? Because whereas our instinctual desire is always to elevate ourselves, the deepest truth behind the universe is that the Son of God, the one for whom and through whom the whole creation exists, that he did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, that he did not take the highest place, didn't elevate himself. No, it's that he emptied himself and became the servant of all. And in doing so, he showered mercy upon all. And so if we're conscious of a desire for that same pattern to inform our life, that will necessarily mean letting Jesus lead us into our district of Tyre and Sidon, into the unwashed territory where our enemy lives, into the heart of our prejudice and our fear and our self-righteousness, and to let Jesus show us how much he loves whoever it is we are tempted to see as inferior. Because as our baptismal liturgy begins, there is one body and one spirit, one hope in God's call to us, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, there is only one. And as Jesus prayed the night before he died, I pray that they might be one as I and the Father are one. And that one 
of which you and I are a part, that one includes our enemies and the people who have hurt us. It includes, as the poem says, the thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, and the trash. The kid from seventh grade who took your lunch money, it includes your ex and the person who doesn't pay attention when the light turns green, meaning you get stuck at the red light for too long. It includes the person at this church who gets under your skin. God's mercy extends even to them. Because the great lie is that condemnation can change their heart, that condemnation can change anyone's heart, that condemnation will ever bring us together. It can't and it won't. No mercy alone can change the human heart and enable us to be the one body that God says we already are. And how good and pleasant it is when brethren live together in unity. Let us pray. O God, you have made us in your image and redeemed us through Jesus, your Son. Look with compassion on the whole human family. Take away the arrogance and hatred which infect our hearts. Break down the walls that separate us. Unite us in bonds of love and work through our struggle and confusion to accomplish your purposes on earth, that in your good time all nations and races may serve you in harmony around your heavenly throne. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.